This morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 16, the first 13 verses. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there with me to Luke chapter 16. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer manage. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one. And despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word. That you would guide us by your spirit. That we would see with eternal eyes. That we would seek after you and your kingdom. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we come here to chapter 16 of Luke, and it's a bit of a jarring change, isn't it? We go from chapter 15 and a parable that everyone practically knows by heart. Everyone knows the basic meaning of, and it is well-beloved. And we come here to this parable that if you are like me, when you come to this for the first or the second time, you wonder what on earth is going on. It actually, if you read it too quickly, seems like Jesus is saying being conniving, cheating and stealing is a good thing to do. Now, 
we have to understand that as we interpret the Bible, a basic principle is if there's a passage we don't understand, we interpret it in light of what we do understand. And this is a perfect example. Since all of the rest of the Bible tells us that Jesus is without sin and that Jesus hates sin and that Jesus discourages sin, we have to understand that our first reading of it is not correct. Jesus is not encouraging sin here. Well, then what is he doing? Jesus is coming to a new subject. He had been talking about the joy of seeing a new disciple, and now he is going to tell us about living as a disciple. He had been challenging us in chapter 15 about the wrong attitude that we can have toward people, and now he is going to come to us about the wrong attitude we can have towards possessions. Jesus is going to teach us this morning and he is going to make us uncomfortable. You see, he is going to talk about money and what the use of money says about our hearts. Now this is dangerous territory for the minister. For you see, the minister is on display for his own use of money. But the other thing is, You'll have to believe me when I tell you that it is widespread experience that I share in that people will come to you and seek help and counsel and give you detailed information about all of the most private things of their marriage, of their children, of their job. But trying to get a word of counsel into them about money is virtually impossible. For most people, it is the most taboo of all topics. It is like going and getting your tooth pulled in the dentist's office without any Novocaine. You can't even get in the chair, let alone get your tooth pulled. And so this morning, Jesus is going to address this topic, but we have to understand he is addressing this topic not mainly so that you can formulate a proper budget but that so we can look into the mirror and see our hearts. So this morning we'll look at two broad categories in this text. First, we will look at the parable itself of the shrewd, dishonest manager. What exactly is going on here? And then secondly, we will look at the lessons that we get from the parable. Well, let's begin then by looking at the parable of this shrewd and dishonest manager. Jesus opens up by directing himself to the disciples. Now, the Pharisees are still there. If you doubt it, let your eyes go down to verse 14. The Pharisees are listening. But Jesus had been addressing himself mostly to the Pharisees, and now he turns to the disciples. And when the Bible says Jesus talks to the disciples, here is a good piece of advice. Insert your name. Jesus is talking to you. If you are a disciple of Jesus, he's seeking to speak to you. And he tells us the story of a rich man who had a manager. Now, this is a really rich man. You have to understand, this manager, he's like a broker, but much more than that. He's like a banker, but more than that. Imagine if you were so rich 
that you had to hire someone whose full-time job was to keep track of how much money you have. That's what's going on here. We have a man of great wealth. And we have to also understand that in this context, there has to be a great deal of trust, right? Because if you're going to hand over all of your business affairs, all of your property, all of your money... The manager would be the one who made the business deals and signed them. He would be the one who took out or made loans. He would be the one who organized the property. The rich man probably doesn't even know how much he owns. He might say to himself today, do I, do I have three jets or five? I can't remember. Did we sell two to buy those boats? I don't know. The only one that would know is the manager. And... Someone has come to the rich man about the manager. They brought charges. So there's evidence, there's concern here. And they brought charges that the man was wasting his possessions. Now, this is a very serious crime. This is not that he's skimming 1% off the top. This is something that not only could get you fired, but could get you thrown in jail. To give you an idea of how serious it is, if we look at what Luke says, that the charge is that the manager was wasting the rich man's possessions, we have to understand that the very exact same word for wasted here is the word used to describe what the prodigal son did with everything he had. So have that image in your mind. This is not a small thing. It's a very great crime. He has been cooking the books. He's been cooking them for some period of time. And you can imagine the rich man feels betrayed. And he comes and he asks a question. What is this that I hear about you? But you have to hear that in the proper tone of voice. It's the tone of voice that your dad uses with you. When he knows you've done something wrong. And he knows, you know he knows. And he's just trying to make a point. What is this that I hear that you've been doing? It's an opportunity to confess, right? The goods are already on you. There's no place to go. You are trapped. And the manager knows this. You can almost picture the wheels turning in his mind. It's the things that you do when you are caught in something. He knows. How much does he know? Does he know everything? What can I do? What could I say if I say? And then you come to that point where you realize you are completely lost. You can't wriggle out of it. And this is what happens to the manager. He says to himself, what shall I do? You see, the rich man has said, I know what's going on. Turn in the accounts and then we'll turn them over to the auditors and we're going to find out exactly how much I own and exactly how much you have taken. So he's, as you can imagine, in a, in a sweat. What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? He knows he's already lost the job. What will he do? He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. I can't work out on the highway crew. I can't work out on the farm. And by the way, that's beneath me. That's, um, that's quite dirty. I don't want to do that. Well, I could beg. No, I, I can't beg. That's beneath me too. I don't want to do that. And by the way, how am I supposed to beg from the people in the town who know I'm a fraud and that's why I lost my job? 
What will I do? And then something happens here in verse 4 that I think in this occasion, the ESV blunts a little bit for us. The ESV sounds uh, rather formal, almost, almost poetic. I have decided what to do. The Greek is actually much sharper. You can almost picture the steward hitting himself in the forehead like they do in those V8 commercials. I know what I can do. It comes to him in a bolt of lightning. He surprises himself. I know what I can do. I will make myself friends in high places. I will have to take a plan and execute it so that I'll be welcome in other people's houses and I won't be out left in the cold. So he comes up with this plan. He knows he needs friends. And then he does something. He begins to follow through on it. He begins to call them in. And you can imagine the plan may have hit him by surprise, but he's a manager. He's shrewd. He's very organized about it. He gets all of the bill payers in one place and he brings them in one at a time here's your first question to think about that i think jesus is asking you do you follow through are you someone that when you come up with a plan you execute it that when something needs to be done you finish it because we all know people that don't right they have all of these grand schemes, but they can't get off the couch. They can't put forth the effort. Jesus is showing us this in the manager for a reason. And so what this manager does is he pulls in first the first debtor. Now, note Luke says one by one. This is a very smart guy. The first guy he brings in and he says, so what's on your account? He says, a hundred measures of oil. Now, that just, as you first look at that, what does that mean? Is that like, is a measure of oil like one of those little bottles that you use with salad? Is it one of those things of vegetable oil at the store on the shelf? Let, let's put it in a little bit more visual perspective. This is probably about a thousand gallons of oil that have to be produced from olive trees. And so the cost of this is something like three years' wages. So imagine that. If we just take a round number for wages in our area of $50,000, this is $150,000. And the manager says to him, write 50. Well, you can imagine what the oil guy thinks. You are the best ever. And I'm going to tell all my friends, you are the best ever. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. I won't say, but man, you are great. He goes out the door. Second guy comes in, how much do you owe? Well, I owe a hundred measures of wheat. Now, again, we scratch our heads. What is, what, what's a measure of wheat? I, I've watched wheat as I've driven by, but I don't know what a measure of wheat is. I'm not even sure how much of the stock is wheat. Well, again, if we think about it, this is about 10 bushels per measure. Now, I've just still lost about 98% of us. What's a bushel? Well, this means this is the yield of about 100 acres of land. It is about the value of seven years' salary. 
So about $350,000 using our example. And he says, write down 80. And the man is ecstatic. You're the best ever. And he runs out the door. Now, you do realize he didn't hear the first exchange. Or he would not have settled at 80, right? This manager has it together. The guy's as happy with him for the 20% cut as the guy who got the 50% cut, right? It's not an advertised sale. Now, what's going on here? Part of what we have to understand is we don't know. There are three very possible things. First and foremost, what we think maybe immediately is, is that the manager is unethically lowering the prices. He is cutting into the rich man's profits. He is having a fire sale. And that's certainly possible. He's he's a dishonest man. There are two other possibilities, though. The first is, is that men in this time, maybe someone like the rich man, maybe even someone like the manager, would sell to someone who couldn't pay right away. There's only one problem. The Old Testament law forbade charging interest. Every sale was supposed to be at 0.0 promotional rate. So you just had to wait for the money to come in. You can imagine that's not such a good deal for the seller. So what would they do? Well, they didn't want to sin against God and charge interest, so they came up with a solution. What they would do is they would build the price of the interest into the sale. You're going to buy 50 measures of oil. I'll sell it to you for 100 measures. Write it down in the book. And so what could be happening here is he could just be reducing the interest that either he or the rich man was charging. Actually doing something lawful and good. Or he could be doing a third thing. He could be like some sports agents. You know, you hear that some football player or basketball player signs some gigantic contract. Here's a secret. They're not getting all the money. The agent takes 20, 25, 30% right off the top. That could be what this man does for a living. He charges a commission for the privilege of doing business with Rich Man Incorporated. you got to pay the manager. And he could be giving up his commission, because he knows the commission's never coming to him because he's out on the streets tomorrow. The point here is we don't know in this one particular instance how dishonest or not this man is. And there's a reason for this. Jesus does not want you to focus on that. This is not a parable about the justice of the man. He does not tell us. He leaves that away from us, so that we do not focus upon it. He wants us to focus on something else, because you see, just like in the parable of the prodigal son, we were waiting and expecting for the lecture to come, and the lesson to be, don't disrespect your father, don't uh, get rid of your inheritance. Here we're expecting to see the rich man come in and go, aha, I see what you're up to. And punish him double. But something really weird happens. Doesn't it? So weird that when you read it you wonder. Did somebody mess with my Bible? The rich man commends. The manager. 
for his shrewdness. Where's the moral lesson? Where's the thing so that we can feel good about ourselves because we don't skim off the top, because we don't try and cheat? Where's where we can see where bad people get what's coming to them? The point is, Jesus is not trying to teach us about that. Jesus is focusing our attention on something completely else. It is a completely different thing to say, I commend the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, as opposed to saying, I commend the shrewd manager for his dishonesty. Right? What the rich man says is, you're pretty smart. Now, he might be saying to himself under his breath, I wish you'd have been that smart when you were in my employee and not tried to take shortcuts. But, you know, give credit where credit is due. You know, it's kind of like this. I follow sports news. Perhaps you do. And there's a coach of a certain team in New England. And I'm not particularly fond of him to start with. But you know what? You can't say he's a rotten coach. He knows how to call plays. He knows how to get the best out of players. He gets to the Super Bowl a lot. You can say. This guy knows what he's doing. At the same time that I say, I think he's a cheat. They caught him once. They're probably going to catch him again this time. But that doesn't change the aspect of how do you coach, right? They're different. Now, that dishonesty affects our view of the man, but it doesn't affect our view of the shrewdness. Jesus wants us to look and think at the shrewdness, and what he's saying is this is a guy who's trying to take care of himself in the here and the now and this life. And look at how smart he is. Look at how hard he plans. Look at how well he follows through. You all can't even do this, and eternal life is at stake. Really? You should be shrewd too. You should be thinking ahead. You should be following through. Jesus wants us to live our lives shrewdly. Being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is not a license to be naive, to be taken advantage of, to be lazy. No. We need to think eternally like the manager thinks about his temporal existence. And so there are three lessons that we get from this. Jesus presses this point home after he's painted this picture. The first is in verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into their eternal dwellings. Now, do not go home and say, the pastor told me to go to the ATM and make it rain money at the library so people will like me. The pastor told me to give money to people, therefore to have friends. That, that's, that's not what I'm saying. What Jesus is saying is, you have to look at your money in an eternal perspective. Are we using people to gain things? 
Or are we using money and things to gain people? There's an eternal difference. Time is running out. I hate to tell you this, but even those of you that are very young, time is running out. Time is short. If you live a very long life, you have maybe 75, 80, 85, 90, 100 years. It goes by in an instant, doesn't it? There's a direct correlation between how young we are and how little we think about time running out. The older we get, the faster we realize the planet is spinning. Time was up for the manager on his job. Time is nearly up on you and me on the gates of eternity. This is not just a job. Are you willing to act decisively now in your eternal interest is what Jesus is saying. We are called to obey Jesus in the use of our wealth. The things that we have will not justify us. They are not the purpose of life and they will not come with us. You cannot take it with you. Even if you stuff it in the casket, all you need to do is go to Egypt and you will see it. The pharaohs tried to take it with them. They put cats and food and wealth and what they're left with now is decaying junk. You can't take it with you. And if you can't take it with you, why are you trying to hoard it? Why don't you use it? Why don't you obey Jesus? Now, I am not saying that it is wicked to own anything or have wealth. Unrighteous wealth here. When Jesus uses the word wealth, it's the old word mammon. It refers to more than money. It refers to money and property and gadgets and cars and vacation homes and everything. And it is not that a car is wicked. Right? Cars don't sin. People sin. But what we have, and as it directs our attention and our gaze, can tempt us to evil. We tend to focus on our cars and how good they are and how good they must be. We tend to focus on the importance of our home, on which college we go to, which gadget we have, which dress we wear, what shoes we have. They consume our time. And it is a temptation that is overwhelming unless we are absolutely aware and cognizant of it. And that's what Jesus is saying. In eternity... No one is going to come up to you and say, you had an awesome Beamer. They're not. Is there anything wrong with owning a BMW? No. But that's not eternity, is it? Think about the joy of someone coming up to you and saying, thank you. You gave to missions. And the missionary came to me, and I received the gospel. And now we're in here together for eternity because of how the Lord used you. Aren't those the kind of friends that you want? Isn't that what lasts eternally? Are we thinking through the eternal consequences of what we have and how we use things? 
There's a second lesson that we see from here. It's related. It's in verse 10. Jesus says, The one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. So we see here what we do in small things matters. It shows our character, doesn't it? When things are unimportant or the the risks aren't real high. And when someone doesn't follow through or when they fail at small things, you won't trust them when the stakes are large, right? If you ask someone to come and pick you up, to take you, to drop off your car at 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock goes by and they're not there. 10.30 goes by and they're not there. You've been calling. 11 o'clock, you finally get a hold of them and they say, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot I slept in. Are you going to put them in charge of your kids for a weekend? No. They can't even do a little thing. How can they manage a big thing? shows your character. It shows your, what you're looking forward to. And so this is a lesson for us that as we do things, even small things, we must do them for the Lord. We must do them with excellence. We must do them with purpose. Small things matter, not because of the thing, but because they show our character. They show where we are pointed. This is what Jesus says. So what I tell you here this morning is, listen to Jesus. Don't give in to small temptations. When you make promises, keep them. Finish the things that you start. In small things, show yourself faithful. And the Lord will bless that. Put into practice the things that you believe. And Jesus tells us in this context, the money is the small thing. If I can't trust you, Jesus says, if you say you are sold out for the kingdom, that you are on fire for the gospel, that you can't wait to be in glory, and you love to praise the Lord, and you want to worship and be with Him in eternity, and I can't count on you to give a few bucks to building the kingdom, what does that say about? It's a minor thing. It's a little thing. We want to be found faithful. We want to push ahead. You see, you can put that into practice here even right now and today. Oftentimes, we don't think about the small things. There's a third lesson. The third lesson is that we are to be not mastered, but serving the master. Now, possessions have a real spiritual power, don't they? All we need to do is look around the world. Countries go to war over things. People lie, cheat, steal, and murder over things, right? These things that are not wicked in themselves have a real power over us as we seek to do whatever we want to get them for ourselves. And so it's a great temptation. It's a great temptation to choose between either serving God or money. And if we are honest with ourselves, we would like to serve both. We'd like to serve God, but we'd like to serve ourselves with money. Right? That's what goes in our hearts. 
as a matter of fact, if we're really honest with ourselves, we like to serve God and money, and we like to serve money first. What does that mean? Well, now, here's where the preacher gets to meddling. When you think about giving to the kingdom, tithing, giving to the church, giving to missions, giving to uh, Bible translation organizations, giving to orphanages, do you sit down and figure out your money and your budget and figure out what it is you need and give away what's left over? That's not serving God. That's taking care of yourself first and then thinking about God. Far better to say, I am going to give, I am going to be generous, I am going to serve the Lord, I'm going to give to Him first, and then I'm going to trust Him to take care of me. So this is where you could put the rubber to the road right now. If you are not tithing, start tithing. But I don't know if I can pay my bills. Trust the Lord. If you're not sure you can make it in one step, go half a step. Then go three quarters of a step. Then go the full step. Trust the Lord. Don't serve yourself. Serve the Lord. You see, money and stuff in general wants to enslave us. And the only way we can break that is by focusing on the Lord. It's not about the amount we give. It's not about how often we give. It is about the direction of our thoughts and our heart. So what's the solution in all of this? First, we have to put God first. When we put God first, we serve Him and not anything else. Secondly, we must put God first, not just in word, but also in deed. Don't just talk a good game. Walk the walk. Be generous, not just with your money, but with your talents and with your time. Have a kingdom view of what you are doing. And then lastly, remember the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what He gave up that we might be rich. You see, Jesus is showing us that our stuff wants us to serve it. And He's telling us we must be shrewd. We must see the end. We must know where we're going. We must understand the pitfalls. And we must work hard not to fall into them. That's the lesson of the shrewd manager. Jesus wants you to be pointed toward the eternal life found in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for touching us on a matter that we often not only do not think about but don't want to think about. Lord, we ask that you would show us how we can concretely resist the temptation to put ourselves and our stuff first. Show us how we are to follow you. Empower us by your Holy Spirit. This we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.